Hello everybody and welcome in. This is Double T. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Double T Podcast Network from here and around the globe. First off, I would like to say that our hearts go out to the great and strong people of the Ukraine who, as of this broadcast, are still putting up such a great and brave fight defending their homeland, their values, everything that they hold sacred. Our hearts and our prayers are with you all. President Zelensky is a leader that comes along once in a generation. He truly loves his country and he leads it by example. He is a remarkable individual and an example that all world leaders should be following. So, as the war in Ukraine rages on, we need to discuss the players. First and foremost, the evil, maniacal dictator, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a Russian former KGB officer who now serves as the president of Russia, a position that he has held since 2012. He took over the reins of power from Boris Yeltsin, who had succeeded Mikhail Gorbachev. He is 69 years old and has held some type of political office for over 20 years, whether it be as prime minister and now as president. What does he feel are appropriate and inappropriate behaviors? What are his motivations for the invasion of the Ukraine? In a recent interview, a Q&A, Michael Horowitz, director of Perry World House, provided some insight into Putin's motivations, nuclear threats, and expansionist views. With Russia's large-scale attack on Ukraine, peace in Eastern Europe has been shattered. Putin has shrugged off sanctions and condemnation from around the globe and has warned countries that any attempt to intercede in the invasion would lead to, quote, consequences like you have never seen before, end quote, appearing to threaten nuclear war. What are his motivations and why is nobody in the game? Where in heavens is Joe Biden? Why did Putin act at this moment in time? Now that we know that Putin's NATO complaints weren't genuine, what do you think the motivations are to invade Ukraine? What is the first question asked of Horowitz? Responding, the best evidence we now have is that Putin believes that an independent democratic Ukraine is a threat to him and to Russia. Unfortunately, he has decided that the only way to deal with that threat is to go in with an overwhelming military force. So why did he act now? This is a crisis of Putin's own making. The information that the Biden administration has released very clearly demonstrates that in every step of the way, that is a manufactured crisis to legitimize Russia's invasion of a sovereign Ukraine. 
As for exactly how there doesn't seem to be a firm reason, except that it's winter in Ukraine, which makes it easier for Russian tanks to crawl over Ukrainian soil, and the Olympics are over, so the invasion is not taking the spotlight away from China. Putin seems to have a desire to rebuild Russia to where it was during the Cold War. He seems to view Russia as having declined since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The speech that he gave to the National Security Council a few days ago said that he thinks that the past Soviet states are actually still part of Russia. Putin has unleashed a horrifying and devastating war in Ukraine based on his desire to grow Russia's status and influence. It is inhumane. People, this essentially is Russians killing Russians. That is not to insult the Ukrainian people, but this was once part of the old Soviet Union. That is why there is so much dissension within the ranks of the Russian military. The Biden administration has been clear that they are not looking to have U.S. military forces directly intervene in the conflict. Ukraine is not a NATO ally of the United States, meaning the United States does not have a treaty obligation to defend it. I think Putin hears NATO getting involved in a way that it would make his conquest attempt much more difficult. There does appear to be an implied threat involving nuclear weapons in his statement. That's consistent with how a lot of people think Russia views its nuclear weapons, in that Russia thinks of itself as conventionally inferior to NATO and certainly to the United States. There has been terrorizing that if a direct conflict with NATO forces occurred, Russia would leverage its nuclear weapons earlier in a conflict because it would worry about losing the convention of war. The Ukraine case is a little bit different than that of Russia trying to prevent intervention. There has been no real public sign that the Biden administration wants to deploy U.S. military forces to Ukraine. In fact, it's a very different thing. The president's been clear they do not want to engage in the no-fly zone because they do not want to engage Russia directly because they do not want to start a World War III. On this issue, I completely agree with the president. This is not the tack we want to take. How we stop Putin is economic sanctions, stop buying his oil, cut off his money supply, and essentially choke him financially. That's how you stop funding the Putin war machine. I talked a moment ago about Russian dissension within the ranks of the military. I want to tell you a little story that I saw on Mark Levin just the other night. Prior to the invasion of Ukraine, there was a Chechenian hit squad called the Wagner Group that Putin had placed in Africa prior 
to the start of the war. And it was a 45-man elite assassination squad that Putin deployed once the invasion started. And they had a kill list. And on the kill list was President Zelensky, every member of his cabinet, and I'm not quite sure who else might have been on there. There have been three assassination attempts made on President Zelensky, and two of them were foiled because of tips that the Ukrainian military received from the Russian military, people in Putin's army, that gave the Wagner Group up. The Wagner Group was killed themselves, and President Zelensky survived the three assassination attempts. So that just gives you a little bit of insight into what's going on within Putin's own forces. So we know why Putin is waging this war, but how did we get here? And what are we doing about it? Unfortunately, folks, we have to become a little bit political here. We're going to take a look at what's going on here at home and what's going on in Eastern Europe with our NATO allies. Former Senator John McCain summed it up the best when he made the quote that Russia is nothing but a gas station masquerading as a country. And he was dead right. When Joe Biden took office, the United States was not importing any oil from Russia or any place else in the world. Today, we import over 600 million gallons of oil a year from Russia. We are also importing a million gallons of oil from Iran every year. You heard what I said, Iran, the mullahs. You know, the people that run around the streets of their country burning the American flag, screaming death to America. But we're not the only ones guilty of this. So is the UK, so is Germany, so is France. We are all guilty of funding Putin's war machine on the Ukraine. We handed him the money. We helped him fund the war. When President Biden got into office, he essentially shut down our coal industry, our natural gas industry, down in Louisiana and Texas, the Keystone XL pipeline, oil drilling and fracking on American soil, as well as drilling in Alaska up in Anwar. And I have some news for you in the United States. We burn cleaner than any country in the world. Our carbon emissions burn cleaner than any other country. But by shutting down all of this industry, all of these fossil fuel industries, what we basically did was we gave up our energy independence to the left's Green New Deal. We have become dependent on others for our oil. I heard a comment that the president made at Andrews before he took off on a flight last night when a reporter asked him about rising prices at the pump. And he said, quote, nothing I can do about it. It's Putin's fault. I beg to disagree, Mr. President. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. To the president's credit, realizing that sanctions were not good enough, he finally stopped buying oil from Russia this week. But now, look at where we're going 
to get this oil from. We're going to people that won't even take his phone calls. Saudi Arabia, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, someone who we don't even recognize as the president of Venezuela, a brutal dictator with substantial human rights violations, as well as Saudi Arabia with their documented human rights violations of women and children. And Iran, I still can't believe I said Iran, we're going to for oil. Back to the Ukraine. I will say this, President Zelensky of Ukraine, again, is one of the most inspirational leaders that I have seen in my life. He is a leader that does come along once in a lifetime. A former actor and comedian who is now leading a resistance against a brutal dictator and has rallied his people like I have never seen and will not leave his soil. He has vowed to fight to the bitter end. But what will be the end of this? Nobody is sure at this point. Nobody thought that Ukraine would put up such a fight. Putin for sure believed he was going to roll into the Ukraine, take the country over and claim it for Mother Russia. He unexpectedly ran into a wall of resistance and dissension amongst his own people and his own troops. The ineptness of the Russian military has also been on display throughout the conflict, which begs question, what else do they have in their arsenal other than nuclear and chemical weapons? That seems to be the question of the day. Putin vaguely alludes to the threat of using nuclear weapons, but the real question, and in the logical next step for this brutal dictator, as he did with Assad in Syria, would be to unleash chemical weapons in Ukraine. And I'm wondering, at what point will he be pushed before he uncorks that bottle? Hopefully never. His own troops have abandoned tanks for the Ukraine to take over and use. A portion of the Russian military is not on board with this war because in the Ukraine, realizing they were part of the old former Soviet Union at one time, as I said before, this is essentially killing your brothers. The tactical moves that this army has made by moving in broad daylight in open areas where they are susceptible to attack are mind-boggling. They have paid a price for that. So who is calling the shots for the Russian military? Another theory that floats around is that at some point, somebody in Putin's inner circle may just take him out, and that would be the best situation possible. So far, according to sources, Ukraine's loss is somewhere between two and 4,000 soldiers. An estimate says the Russians have lost somewhere between five and 6,000 soldiers, which was reported by The Guardian online. Not quite sure how accurate that is now, but only troops from Ukraine have suffered massive civilian casualties, including a children's hospital. To this point, the only thing positive that has happened so far is that the NATO allies seem to be aligned stronger than ever before. Tough US and global sanctions against Russia 
including the seizing of Putin's yacht, which they found in Italy, a $700 million luxury liner, are beginning to take its toll on the Russian economy. NATO allies have stopped importing oil from Russia, as has the U.S., effectively cutting off funding to Putin for his war machine, which is why I am concerned about his use of chemical weapons at this point. But what will make Putin stop this war? I don't believe that there is any way that Putin stops this war unless he gets something out of it and gets a graceful exit strategy without losing face. And I'm not quite sure what that is. And it's way beyond my pay grade and way beyond my negotiating skills. China has been curiously quiet throughout this whole ordeal, as well as they should be. However, being Russia's silent partner and agent provocateur, According to an article on The Hill, how can the war in Ukraine end? If anything, the United States, NATO, and perhaps China can do something to end a conflict can be considerable for both combatants and civilians. If reports are correct that Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered an increase in the readiness of Russian nuclear forces, Obviously, that threat is meant to intimidate not only Ukraine, but the entire world. So what is Putin's exit strategy? Beyond that, is there an overarching conclusion to be drawn now that it would be relevant that no matter how this conflict ends? And finally, what may be one of the greatest, less visible dangers for President Biden in this crisis. Whether any negotiation arises in the short term, as suggested by initial reports from Moscow, or awaits how the war proceeds, will be answered in due course. While reference to the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse has been made, a better analogy is Japan's December 7, 1941 surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The Japanese imperial staff believed that given the isolationism rampant in America, Washington would be quick to capitulate. And as Russia has launched strikes across much of Ukraine, Japan likewise rapidly occupied much of the Far East. The United States did not capitulate. The sneak attack had precisely the opposite effect. Well, something similar has happened as the Ukraine resistance is galvanized and the war becomes a bloody stalemate. Clearly, Putin must have an exit strategy. A short, intense, straight note as the principal author of Ock and Awe it was designed to avoid using overwhelming force and maximum damage and casualties to succeed, as it seems to be the case in Ukraine. Even if Russia were to occupy Kyiv and install a puppet government, what is the guarantee that it would last without stationing many hundreds of thousands of troops to protect it? 
And if a street fight broke out, images of Stalingrad and Hugh City in Vietnam in 1968 come to mind. Should the conflict persist, global economies would be sensitive to recession or worse, as oil prices soar and supply lines were disrupted. Ironically, an economic downturn might prompt China to persuade Russia that a conclusion was in everybody's best interest, especially China's. So negotiation, probably sooner than later, must be Putin's smartest exit. Does the Ukraine crisis demand NATO re-examine its purposes, organization, and the nature of the security condition it bases? The Cold War demanded deterring the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union collapsed. NATO went out of the area so as not to go out of business. After 9-11, global extremism became the norm. Today, U.S. focus has fundamentally shifted to Asia. Many, including myself, don't agree. Ukraine and Russian belligerence demands a rebalancing of interests. A new strategy is also required. In this case, one based on a porcupine defense to disrupt and to halt an initial attack making the cost too great for any aggressor to consider acceptable. Ukraine was the ideal proving ground had it been armed with tens and thousands of sea-to-air and land and unmanned systems, huge numbers of anti-air and anti-armor portable weapons, long-range missiles to strike deeply, electronic and other systems to confuse, deceive, and misinform, misdirect, to decapitate and harass command control and leadership and improvised devices was up to 20,000 pounds of high explosives to take out all access routes, choke point roads, and bridges. President Biden faces a daunting array of challenges. Surprisingly, one of the greatest dangerous things that Biden faces may be the future of domestic consensus and support of the war. Some Republicans have already blamed the war on Biden's failure of leadership, categorizing Putin as strong and our president as weak. A significant portion of Americans questions why Ukraine is important to the U.S. As of last weekend, most Americans disapproved of how the president was handling the crisis. But in fairness, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln would have been hard-pressed to cope with the daunting array of concurrent crisis in confronting this as Commander-in-Chief. So what do we conclude here? Well, first off, we lift our hearts out and our prayers up to the people of Ukraine for the unnecessary pain and suffering that they are going through at the hands of dictator Vladimir Putin. This is a man with no conscience or moral compass, for if you can authorize the bombing of a children's hospital when you have children yourself, you are not a man, you are an absolute monster. Praise to the people of Ukraine for putting such a brave and valiant fight into their president, Zelensky, who was one of the greatest natural leaders I have seen in my lifetime. 
It is all of our hopes that this war stops now and hopefully maybe somebody in Putin's inner circle will take the bastard out. It is good to see, finally, that we are not importing Russian oil. But make no mistake about it, that is not why gas is creeping up to five, close to six, and eventually seven dollars a gallon here at home. It's not because of this war in Ukraine. I saw the president the other night, again, like I said, blaming it on Putin. Mr. President, I will say one thing. The price at the pump and the record inflation that we are having now is your administration's failed policies. It's your fault. Inflation happens because you're printing too much money and devaluating our dollar. Hence, we have inflation. That's why we're paying $4 a box of saltines at the grocery store. That's why you're paying what you're paying for that gasoline at the pump. And that's why it's going to cost you more to heat your home and cool your home. As far as our administration is concerned, you care nothing more than going green and that everybody should have an electric car, which probably about 75 to 80 percent of this country cannot afford. And this war was the best thing that could have happened to you, Mr. President, because it deflected everybody's attention away from your administration's failed policies. End of that part of the discussion. We should not be going to brutal dictators in Saudi Arabia or the mullahs in Iran or to Iran with their gross human rights violations and their death to America themes to purchase our oil. We should go back to the policies of the last few years and become energy independent again. So, Mr. President, grow a set. So, I hope we gave you a little bit of insight and a little bit of perspective on Putin's war in Ukraine. And if you have any questions and you would like to ask us anything, or if you have any comments, you can always email us at doubletpodcast at iCloud.com. That's D-O-U-B-L-E, the letter T podcast at iCloud.com. You can also leave a message for us on our website, and that would be doubletpodcast.com, doubletpodcast.com. Or you can also leave us a voicemail or a text message 24 hours a day, seven days a week on our talking text line, which is 413-218-2429. Again, the Double T talking text line is 413-218-2429. You can reach us 24-7 on the talking text line. Well, folks, uh, we are also on Twitter at Double T Podcast and also on Facebook. With that, folks, I hope you enjoyed our show. Touchy subject. Um, We will have some announcements coming up in the next week for some very special guests heading your way. Please don't forget to do your due diligence and mask up when you should. Hand sanitize. Be safe out there, folks. And folks, last but not least, if you have the opportunity to do a random act of kindness for somebody, uh, please take that opportunity for if everybody did a random act of kindness uh, once a day, uh, 
this world would be a much better place to live in. So with that, my friends, until next time, this is Double T saying, be safe, take care, and we here at the Double T Podcast love you all. Bye now. Thank you.